Matthew 5:38-42. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not res resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you, and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. I want us to go to the Lord in prayer as, as we do. Um, I feel a special need for prayer. I do every time I preach, but this particular text quite frankly, makes me seriously nervous. Uh, on the one hand, uh, I don't want to get it wrong. And then on the other hand, I don't want to get it right in the wrong way. Uh, and uh, so we need the Lord's help. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we live in, in a world that when looked at from one angle is beautiful and wonderful and filled with creatures, human beings who are made in your image, who are reflections of the heavenly. And yet at the same time, Father, it is a world in which evil dwells and because of evil it is a angry world and a retaliatory world and a fighting world and a hostile world. Father, would you please speak to us this afternoon truth that flowed from the lips of our King, the Lord Jesus Christ. And may we have ears to hear it and hearts to receive it, and wisdom to discern its exact nature, and then much grace and much help to apply it in the everyday circumstances of our lives. We look to you for help and are thankful, Father, that you have promised to help. So we are confident in your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I have entitled today's message, In the Face of Evil. Uh, we are returning this afternoon to our series through the Gospel of Matthew. And in that section, early section of Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount, we find ourselves at the passage, at the text that was just read. In this text, King Jesus speaks to the question of what we are to do when faced with evil, the evil of others in this evil world. I, I should say up front that I'm convinced that he is talking here primarily about personal evil. He's not talking about criminal evil. He's not talking about life-threatening evil. He's talking about evil that takes place in our personal relationships. But even with that, the teaching of our Lord is so hard and it's so counterintuitive, it 
goes against our instincts and our impulses in such a way that I want to make sure that we approach it carefully asking a few questions. Here are the questions that I'm going to try to address. Who speaks these words? What does he, when does he speak these words? What does he mean by these words? And how should we live in light of these words? As we, as we approach the text that was just read, you should notice again that in these verses, Jesus talks in very uh, cut and dried, black and white, unqualified, even hyperbolic or exaggerated ways to, for a sense of shock and awe in their impact on us. This is Jesus' pattern, his way in the Sermon on the Mount. He says things in ways that are unqualified. He says things in ways that if you took them with absolute literalness, some strange things would happen. When he says earlier that we should cut out our eye if ever it leads us to see things in a lustful way, we, we rightly understand that he is exaggerating in order to make a point. When he says later don't take an oath, just say yes and no, He's not taking the time in this sermon to qualify that as the Bible does in other places where we learn that there are times when it is valid to take an oath and in fact God himself takes oaths. And when he says here that we are to turn the cheek when we are slapped on our right cheek, it not likely he means literally make sure that every time somebody hits you, you swivel your head so that they can hit the other side. And when he says, give away both your inner and your outer garments, your tunic and your coat or your cloak, I trust that you understand that he does not mean that we are to give away all our clothes. There are pointed spiritual, moral, ethical standards that Jesus is making here in the Sermon on the Mount. And he says these things the way he does because he wants to make sure that we don't miss them. And he says them without qualification. He says them without caveat because, well, sometimes the point that the Bible makes or that Jesus makes can get lost, as, as somebody has said, it can die the death of a thousand qualifications. By the time you're done qualifying, by the time you're done giving the exceptions, by the time you're done giving this explanation and the rest, by the time you're done with all of that, you get almost nothing left. And Jesus is saying things pointedly here. He is saying things emphatically here. He is even exaggerating in one sense so that we would realize how serious these things are. So, what is the point of the text that was just read to us? The point is this. Here's my summary. King Jesus is telling me, King Jesus is telling all of us this. When I am in the face of evil, 
I must never make it personal, and I must never make it about me. When I am in the face of evil, I must never make it personal, and I must never make it about me. I'm going to unpack that, but let's do that by running through those questions I gave you just a couple of minutes ago. Let's, let's ask question number one first. Who is it that speaks these words? And you would say the answer is obvious. Jesus speaks these words. Yes, I realize it's Jesus, but who is this Jesus? He is King Jesus. Remember, we've been learning this in the Gospel of Matthew. This is the Gospel of the Kingdom. This is the Gospel of the King. The, the phrase Kingdom of God, Kingdom of Heaven, and King appeared dozens of times in Matthew's Gospel. This is about the coming of the Kingdom. And this is about the coming of the King. And the one who speaks these words speaks them with the authority that you feel in verses 38 and 39. Look at those verses again. You have heard, Jesus said, that it, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you. That contrast, you have heard that it was said, and who said that, folks? Moses. Moses, a pretty high-ranking guy in the history of believers, in the history of the people of God. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, Jesus' construction there, his words there are meant to say something to you. Moses said this, yes, but I'm saying this. Your, your priests and your prophets have said this, but... I'm saying this. Your spiritual authorities have all said this, but now it's time to really listen because I who am your king, I who am your lawgiver and judge, I am speaking. Listen up. This, this is coming to us, folks, directly from the throne. This is coming to us directly from King Jesus, from the one that the Father said in chapter 3 was his beloved Son with whom he is well pleased. This is the one who throughout chapter 5 has been pressing his law into our hearts with compelling love. He's the one who's been outlining for us the lifestyle of the kingdom of God, the way true disciples of Jesus are to live in the fallen world. This is the one who has told us that our righteousness must surpass that of the Pharisees. So while they were doing, the Pharisees were doing all the right things on the outside, Jesus says you need to get it right on the inside. It's not enough to keep from murdering others with your hand. You must not murder them with your heart or with your tongue. It's not enough that you keep from committing adultery with your body. You must keep from doing so with your eyes and with your mind. It's not enough to keep your words when you've taken a solemn oath and said, I do solemnly swear. You must keep your word when you say yes. And when you say no, this is King Jesus talking to us. The only lawgiver and judge, our maker, our master, our mentor, our model, our monarch. He is talking to us. And so we need to listen up. 
This isn't Tim Shorey talking. This is King Jesus talking to us. Second question, when does he speak these words? Well, we get a hint in verse 41 where Jesus says, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. This is a historical reference, actually, to the time in which Jesus lived. What was going on in that time was that the Roman Empire was in power, and Roman soldiers were given the right, given permission by law, anytime they wanted to, to walk up to anybody on the street and by force compel that person to carry a load for them, whatever it was, their equipment, their clothing, whatever it may have been, they could compel somebody to walk with them for a mile in any direction carrying their burden. And so what Jesus, when Jesus says this is in a time where there is Roman oppression. This oppression was systemic. It was unjust. It was racist. Rome was the established colonizing empire whose heavy hand reached all the way to Israel. It was pervasive, it was systemic, it was racist, it was oppressive, it never seemed to end. Folks, that's one reason why in chapter 4 when Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is at hand, everybody got so excited. All the Jewish folks thought, okay, finally, we've been waiting for this for a long time. We've been under this heavy hand of Rome for so long. And then hearts were lifted and hope soared. Maybe now, through this person who says he's the king, maybe now the domination can end. Maybe now the injustice can end. Imagine their shock, their disappointment when Jesus opens his mouth here. And doesn't say to them, rejoice, I am ending the evil. What does he say? He says, when evil happens, here's how you are to respond. He doesn't tell us that evil was going to end. He doesn't say evil was going to change. What he says is that We need to change in the face of the evil that will keep on going. He says this to them in a context and culture and moment of great oppression and domination. And he says, there's a way I want you to respond. Third question, what does he mean by these words. Well, in summary, I've already given it to you. When I am in the face of evil, I must never make it personal and I must never make it about me. Let me, let me explain how I got that. First, when I'm in the face of evil, I must never make it personal. Look at verse 39. I hope you're keeping your Bibles open. We're just looking at the text here. Verse 39, I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. I think some of the translations have do not resist evil, but that misses what Matthew or Jesus actually says and Matthew actually writes in the original Greek language. Matthew actually uses a personal pronoun here or or a, a, a term but gives it a 
he kind of personifies it. He is, he is not talk, talking about evil in the abstract. He is talking about an evil person. We are to resist evil. We are not to resist evil people. There's a difference. Jesus resisted evil in every single thing he ever said or he ever did, but he never resisted people. He, he opposed evil. He opposed sin. He drove it back through the quality of his life and the depth of his love and the courage of his convictions. He resisted evil, but he never opposed people. He loved people and cared for people. There are great evils that must be resisted. The, just, the evil of sex trafficking, the, the worldwide abuse of women and children, the holocaust of abortion, the explosive growth of slavery around the world, the massive disparity between the wealth that all of us have and the abject poverty in so many parts of the world, the horrendous evil of racial injustice and bigotry in all directions. Brothers and sisters, these great evils must be resisted. They must be opposed. Let us resist evil, but, Jesus says, let us not resist or oppose or stand against or hate or despise or fight with people with people, even people who do evil. No matter how much evil they do against you, I am not to make it personal. I am not to attack them in response. I was reflecting on this and it made me think of Corey Ten Boom. Some of you Many of you, I'm sure, are familiar with that name. She and her family resisted the evil of Nazi Germany back in the war by helping Jews to escape. But over time, they were arrested. They were put in concentration camps in which her parents and her sister died. Maybe you've heard the story, but it was a few years later, and I'll pick it up where she tells the story here. This is what she writes. It was in a church in Munich that I saw him, a balding, heavy-set man in a gray overcoat, a brown felt hat clutched between his hands. People were filing out of the basement room where I just spoke and moving along the rows of wooden chairs to the door at the rear. It was 1947 and I had come from Holland to defeated Germany with the message that God forgives. The solemn faces stared back at me, not quite daring to believe. There were never questions after a talk in Germany in 1947. People stood up in silence, in silence collected their wraps, in silence left the room. And that's when I saw him working his way forward against the others. One moment, I saw the overcoat and the brown hat, the Next moment, I saw a blue uniform and a visored cap with its skull and crossbones. It came back with a rush, the huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes that were in the center of the floor, the shame of 
walking naked past this very man. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, ribs sharp beneath the parchment skin. Betsy, how thin you were. You see, Betsy and I had been arrested for concealing Jews in our home during the Nazi occupation of Holland, and this man had been a guard at Ravensbrück concentration camp where we were sent. Now he was in front of me, hand thrust out. A fine message, Fraulein, how good it is to know that, as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And I, who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take that hand. He would not remember me, of course. How could he remember one prisoner among thousands? But I remembered him. And the leather crop swinging from his belt. It was the first time since my release that I had been face to face with one of my captors and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk, he was saying. I was a guard there. No, he didn't remember me. But since that time, he went on, I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there. But I would like to hear it from your lips as well. Fraulein, again the hand came out, will you forgive me? And I stood there, I whose sins had every day to be forgiven, and I could not forgive. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, but to me it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I ever had to do, for I had to do it. I knew that. I knew it not only as a commandment of God, but as a daily experience for those who do not forgive are swallowed up in bitterness and hate. And I still and still I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will and the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into my jo our joined hands. And then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all my heart. For a long time, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. We need to be careful here. If the evil done involves abuse and danger, there are actions that are needed. If the evil done is a criminal act, if it is something that is putting others at risk, if there is a moral or a legal obligation to report the evil done, action is needed. But the Bible also says to us that we are not to make it personal. That as we resist evil, we are not to oppose the person 
who is committing it. You can tell why perhaps this message makes me nervous. There are, we're walking a tight rope here. We're walking the edge of a cliff. And on either side we can fall. Jesus takes this further in shocking ways. Gives us some illustrations and examples. And in doing this tells us not just that we are not to make it personal. We're not to make it about me. Look at, look at verses 39 through 42 again as I read the entire text. Notice as I go. But I say to you, Jesus says, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Notice the focus. Turn to him. Let him have. Go with him. Give to the one who begs or borrows. It's not about me. When evil is being done to me, it is not to be made personal and it's not to be made about me. And, and Jesus presses the point by telling us that rather than resisting people and opposing people, for the sake of others, we should renounce self. And, and I would suggest that he says we should renounce five things in the face of evil. Let's look at these quickly. Number one, we should renounce getting even. We should renounce getting even, or we should renounce retaliation. Verses 38 and 39, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. And if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Do not retaliate. Do not hit back. Do not get even. A lot that could be said about, and how do I say this briefly? Jesus here is talking about our personal relationships. He's not talking about government here. Uh, he's not talking about what civil authorities have the right and responsibility to do by way of punishing evildoers. If you want to read about that, Romans 12 and 13 will give you the teaching that you need. He is talking here about renouncing getting even. I don't get mad, I get even. I retaliate, I fight back. And he says that when we are slapped on the cheek, we should rather turn the other cheek than strike that person's cheek. Jesus also tells us we are to renounce. This gets harder, folks. So prepare. Um, we are to renounce our dignity and honor. When we are attacked, when evil happens to us, again, I'm not talking about abuse. I'm not talking about physical, life-threatening things. I'm talking about the interpersonal relationships of our lives. When evil is done to us, 
We must be willing to renounce our dignity and our honor. Look at the text. Look at verse 39. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Don't miss the details in this text. If anyone slaps you, slapping in the face in that culture and in most cultures is a sign of disrespect. It is a sign of dishonor, and Jesus intensifies it. Notice what he says, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn your other also. I'm right-handed, as most people are, and in order for me, if Dave was standing up here and I was going to slap him, in order for me to slap Dave, who is facing me on his right cheek, what part of my hand will he feel? The back of my hand. It is a backhanded slap. A slap by itself in that culture was disrespectful. A backhanded slap was an ultimate sign of disrespect and humiliation. Folks, It was something akin to being spat on in the face. In fact, in that culture, in that ancient shame-based culture, uh, they took this so seriously that if somebody slapped you with the back of their hand, you could take them to court. It just was not done. It crossed the line, but Jesus says, even if that happens to you, Do not retaliate. There is something more important than your honor, than your dignity in that moment. It is to not return evil for evil. And it's ironic, folks, wonderfully, gloriously ironic that if we actually live the way Jesus says here in renouncing our dignity and our honor by not fighting for it with tooth and claw, by renouncing it, we actually gain it. For there is such honor, there is such dignity, there there is such nobility in the person who is strong in faith, strong in heart, strong in love, strong in conviction to such a degree that when attacked, he does not have to attack in return. When dishonored, he does not have to fight for his honor because he knows that in Christ he has all the honor he needs. And yet, on the other hand, if we return evil for evil, we sink to the level of those who attack. Jesus says, be willing to renounce your honor, your dignity. Be willing, third, to renounce your rights. We see this in the text again. In verse 39, as I said just a minute ago, when somebody slapped you on the cheek, particularly a backhanded slap, you had the right in that time to take them to court. And Jesus says, don't do that. Don't exercise your rights. Be willing to give up your rights. And then in verse 40, if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. It is important to understand that in the Old Testament law, there was a stipulation made that if a man owed money to another man, there was one thing that was not to be taken as collateral. It was the cloak. 
The tunic is a light inner garment. The cloak was the outer coat. It was, it was how warmth was preserved in cold weather. It was often used as a blanket at nighttime. A cloak was for warmth. A cloak was for sleep. And you were not to take that. By law, it was forbidden that a cloak be taken from anyone. And yet Jesus says, renounce your rights. Renounce your rights. Though you have a legal right to your cloak, though you have a legal right to go to court, Renounce your rights rather than fight the person. He goes on. He says that in the face of evil, we are to renounce our time and our convenience. Verse 41. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two. That takes time. That's inconvenient. But Jesus says, when someone takes advantage of you, rather than fight with him or her, go the extra mile. Go the extra mile. Renounce both time and convenience to do good to others, even if they have done evil to you. And then finally, Jesus says that in the face of evil, we are to renounce our stuff, our money, our goods. Look at verse 42. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Renounce your stuff. The point of all this is that in the face of evil, there's something more important than my getting even, my getting honor, my getting my rights, or my needs, or my happiness, or my freedom, or my justice or my convenience or my time or my stuff. That which is more important is me showing you and showing the world that you and others are more important than me. That's what matters, Jesus says. It's in showing you and showing the world that we as believers have a higher and a nobler interest than self-interest. It is interest in others and it's the needs of others. This is kingdom life, Jesus says. This is how we are to live. Which leads to the final question. How do we live in light of these words? How do we live in light of these words? When we are in the face of evil, when uh, evil is in our face, how are we to live? And I suggest, first of all, be like Jesus. Be like Jesus. Listen to these words from 1 Peter chapter 3. Peter would have been sitting at the feet of Jesus when Jesus preached this sermon on the mount. And later on, years later, Peter recounts it and and expands on it in this way. 1 Peter 3 and 4. For to this you have been called. He's writing to us, brothers and sisters. To this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. 
He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges rightly. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. We are to follow the example of Christ who did not commit sin even when being sinned against. When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten. He entrusted himself to God. He did this for us and Aren't you glad? He was willing to be sinned against without fighting back because he was going to the cross. Because he was willing to give it all up for you and me. Your sins, my sins, your anger, your wrath, your retaliation, your injustice, all the junk you've committed. Jesus went to the cross to die for it all, to atone for it all, to to take our sins far, far, far away. Peter says, and Jesus says, Jesus says, be like me. When you're reviled, don't revile back. That's just another way of saying, turn your cheek. Someone may say, "That's, that's Jesus. Nobody else can do that. Let's get real here. But brothers and sisters, Christians have been doing this for 2,000 years. 2,000 years, you ever read the story of the early Christians who were fed to the lions in the Colosseum? Have you ever read the story of, of those believers who were lit up under Emperor Nero's rule? They were dipped in oil and put on poles and burned so that Nero could have an outdoor at night party under lights. Have you ever read the story about how those Christians refused to revile? They refused to fight back. And they went to their death nobly and valiantly and with great honor. Or I was thinking this week of one of the distinguishing qualities of Dr. Martin Luther King. It was said at his funeral by Dr. Benjamin Maze. If any man knew the meaning of the word suffering, Dr. King knew it. House bombed, living day by day for 13 years under constant threats of death, maliciously accused of being a communist, falsely accused of being insincere, stabbed by a member of his own race, slugged in a hotel lobby, jailed over 20 times, occasionally deeply hurt because his friends betrayed him, and yet this man had no bitterness in his heart, no rancor in his soul, no revenge in his mind, and he went up and down the length and breadth of this world, preaching nonviolence and the redemptive power of love. Real people keeping the law of the king Believers all around the world today are doing this, folks. All over the world, Christians are being persecuted. They're being hunted down. They're being thrown in jail. 
And time after time after time after time, they walk to their fate with grace and dignity, not returning evil for evil, not opposing the evil people that are attacking them, though standing against the evil being done. And many right here in this room are doing this. Those that are in marriages that are hard and difficult, and a wife or a husband who is just day in, day out refusing to answer evil with evil. Or those that are in job situations where the boss is a tyrant or the co-workers take advantage and day after day you go into work and you say, I'm going to live for the glory of Christ and I'm not going to retaliate. Or maybe a neighbor, I don't know, a neighbor who throws his garbage on your yard or treats you like dirt, but you're walking with grace and you're walking with love and you're not returning evil for evil. Yes, my friends, this can be done in the real world. It is being done in the real world. It is being done in many of your lives to God be the glory for it. Let us then increase and abound. Let us be like Jesus. Let us be like Christ. Secondly, I would recommend that as we are doing this, we... uh, um, Debating in my mind whether to go in this direction or not. Let me say this, that there is, I want to make sure this is clear. While we are not to return evil for evil, that does not mean that we are to let evil happen without some kind of answer or response to it. This is one reason why God has given us government for all of its imperfections, for all of its corruptions, for all of its inconsistencies. Romans 12 tells us, do not return evil for evil. Don't seek vengeance. Romans 13 tells us, God has ordained established authorities to avenge evil. That's government's job. So, if evil is happening, particularly that which is life-threatening, that which is abusive, that which is, is physically endangering or emotionally cruel, There is a time and there is a place to definitely report. Make sure it gets to the attention of those that it needs to get to. This is not calling for passivity. This is not calling for pacifism. As if there's never a time to speak up and to defend. So please, if if stuff is happening in your life, Make sure you report it to who it needs to get reported to. Make sure there's accountability. Just don't sink to the level of those who are doing evil to you. Does that make sense? I believe that's what the Bible teaches us. Now you're listening to that perhaps and saying even that is terrifying. Brothers and sisters, I know. 
I know, and, and, and this is why we must entrust ourselves to God. This is, this is why, this is what Peter says, therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. We need to entrust ourselves to God, don't we? Because at the end of the day, Junk and oppression and evil happen every day, and the vast majority of the evil never gets avenged. The vast majority of evil in this world never is held accountable, never faces the punishment, faces the, the judgment it deserves, and we need to entrust ourselves to, to God, Lord, please take care of me. Lord, I am in your hands. If you're in danger, flee from the danger, but entrust yourself to God. Entrust yourself to God. And can I add this? Pray, pray for vindication and deliverance. This is not telling us, sit passively. This is not telling us that somehow or other this is just the way it's going to be. No, pray for vindication. Pray for deliverance. Do you know that the martyrs who are in heaven now are praying for vindication? I know this sounds like it's somehow or other unspiritual or unloving, but you just need to understand there is nothing wrong with praying for vindication. There is nothing wrong with praying for deliverance. If wrong has been done to you, Pray, pray first of all, Lord, please save this person from their evil ways. Lord, please transform his or her heart so that they are a new creature in Christ. Lord, please save them. Please make them new. Please stop the evil. Please stop the injustice. But Lord, if they're not going to come to faith, take them out. If they are not going to come to faith, then Lord, Put a stop to it. Put a stop to it. I mean, the saints in heaven pray this. Revelation 6. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. And they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? I don't know about you, when I first read that years ago, I was shocked by it. These are perfected, sinless saints in heaven who are praying, Lord, how long before you avenge us? In a world in which there is personal evil and personal injustice and systemic evil and systemic injustice, and some of us in our grace and race conversation this morning had moments where there was just this realization that Probably it's never going to get fixed this side of heaven. In a world like that, if we do not believe in a just God, if we do not believe in a God who will make all things right, if we, we do not believe in a God who will avenge and vindicate his people, then we despair. But we have that God. 
We have that God. He sits upon the throne and the day is coming when all those who do evil and refuse to repent will face God. And that's why Paul says in Romans, don't avenge yourselves. Leave room for the wrath of God. God will take care of it. That doesn't mean stay in the place of danger. That doesn't mean don't speak up. That doesn't mean quietly, passively, like a doormat, let people stomp all over you. That doesn't mean that. It does mean that as we seek to carry ourselves with grace and courage and faith and endurance, we can pray, Lord, how long? And we can know. We can know that the day is coming when it all will be made right. I I'm here to say to you this afternoon, brothers and sisters, that we need a robust faith as we, as we live a life of unbelievable self-renouncing love. We need a robust faith in the justice of God. He will make it right. He will make it right. And dear church, dear family, assumed in all of this is the fact that we are going to face injustice. We are going to face persecution. Uh, we are going to face evil. Back in chapter, uh, verse 12, Jesus says, when they revile you, when they persecute you, not if, on the off chance that you, know, you get some persecution. No, it's a when thing. You know, all of us in different ways have been unjustly treated, badly treated, wrongly treated, evil done. Different ways, but uh, I really believe with all my heart that there's going to be something that unites all of us as Christians in coming days and months and years, and that's an experience of persecution for the church. If you love Jesus, you're going to be hated. If you love what is holy and hate what is sin, you're going to be hated. If you call sin, sin, you're going to be hated. If you say Jesus and Jesus alone is Lord, you're going to be hated. If you say Jesus and Jesus alone is the way to the Father, the way to heaven, you will be hated. If you stand against evil and injustice in this world, you will be hated. We will all be hated together, so we need to learn these things. Let us, let us realize that we are not to make it personal and we are not to make it about ourselves. So that when the day of darkness, when the day of evil comes, when the day of persecution comes, we can stand by the grace of God with courage, with faith, with dignity, with love, with kindness. And as we're going to hear next week, the next, we've heard the one side of the coin today, the kind of negative, don't do this, don't do that. Next week, Leo's going to preach and bring us the other side. Do good. Love your enemies. Be kind to your enemies. Pray for your enemies. Because in this way we overcome evil with good. This is the word of the Lord. May, may it be this my prayer. If in any way, any words or emphasis in what I've said here is wrong. May God have grace to cover it, and you too. And to the degree that this is faithful to the words of Christ, may we all have grace to obey.